Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm thinking about running for president, actually. <laughs> well, you have the platform. I, I, You're on the internet. This is true. Uh, this is definitely true. I, I, it seems any anybody anybody with a, a bit of righteous indignation can get up right now. Uh, well, yeah, and apparently uh, you don't even have to be born in the U.S. So, I, <laughs> God damn it! You that was the joke. You were supposed to say, James, uh, you're not American. You can't do it. And I was going to say, well, it didn't stop Obama. Oh, see, I I, I was thinking of of, of Cruz. Um, which your joke would have been funnier. I'm sorry. You told me before the episode you had a joke that you were waiting to spring on me. And I, I wanted to spring it. I thought st- the first thing you were going to do was going to be like, but you're not American. I was like, yeah, but it didn't stop Obama. Anyway, I guess sometimes you pull these things off and sometimes you don't. Well, you went through all the effort of warning me you had a joke, but not telling it to me. <laughs> well, we can re-record it if you want. No, no I'm, I'm enjoying your absurdity. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I know. Well, what seems to be more absurd is that uh, the, the person who was like one of the leading uh, accusers of the, the president not being born in America seems to be doing quite well in the polls, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, we'll kind of get into that. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not a political observer. Uh, I'm a political observer. I'm just not a political analyst, but well, yeah, let's, let's get to the sponsorship before we, we get half our audience turning it off. And <laughs> Support for this episode of Exponent comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is the leading online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in large scale solar projects across the US. Wonder's solar investment funds allow you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution and combating global climate change. Investing in Wonder Capital's solar funds diversifies your exposure to bonds, stock and commodity markets fluctuations. This is because Wonder's solar funds are backed by strong solar projects, not the market. Thousands of users have already taken advantage of Wonder's platform. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com exponent. Now that's Wonder with a U. Invest in Wonder Capital solar funds, do well and do good. Uh, thanks again to Wonder Capital for sponsoring this this episode of Exponent. Um, so yeah, as as we kind of alluded to, uh, I I I wrote about politics this week, but I think um, not about a, not not from a partisan perspective. More, I think, from a, an observational sort of perspective. And it was, it was actually is an article that that took me uh, longer than usual to write, hmm. in part to kind of explain what I was getting at. And, and I, I'm, it's, one, it's one of those things where, uh, I mean, it's been pretty well received, but uh, I'm still not totally satisfied. So this is where it's, it's, it's particularly helpful to have a podcast to kind of try to explain what I was trying to get at. Sounds good. Well, I thought you did an excellent job. So why don't you dive in? Well, what I was, tr- what I was trying, to, um, trying to get at was, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about, and I spent a lot of time writing about uh particularly in the case of of media the fundamental sort of upheaval that's happened and and the vast majority of the perspective that I, that I've written from has been uh sort of the business side and that's what I do I mean strategy is about the the business and, and strategy of technology that's kind of the niche that I'm focused on I think that has you know helped me break through to whatever extent that I have and it's been a very fruitful one for analysis I mean talking about advertising and how how companies make money and a big part of this is 
we spent a lot of time, you know, newspapers are the most obvious example, but this extends generally to other media forms. Just newspapers have been impacted the most dramatically. This idea that they, they, they had such a, a lock on distribution and that lock on distribution and the kind of the production of the actual content, let them bundle, integrate uh, advertising and editorial and deliver it to a captive audience. And in any value chain, the company mm. that is integrated is the one that usually reaps the vast majority of the profits. Everyone else in the chain is, is modularized and, and makes minimal profits. And mm. what happened with the internet was uh, the, the one, there is a, a few things that happened. One, any newspaper could reach anyone in the world, which meant everyone was now competing with everyone. So there was no longer sort of like a captive audience. And so you weren't you you weren't guaranteed to have an audience just because you existed, right? As it used to be the case, especially for a lot of local newspapers. Uh, now, now your local newspaper was competing against the New York Times or all these new entities that that came and were online only. And that's that, that's a very difficult, mm. you know, more competition is more difficult, uh, without question. The second thing that happened though is that is that advertising and editorial got unbundled, and it became much more efficient to uh to to have entities that were focused just on advertising, kind of whether that be an ad network that would serve ads across tons of different sites, track people across the different sites, and then the editorial just kind of had a place for advertising to go. Um, but, but that made it into basically a, commoditized it made it into a filler. And now we're getting kind of the, the, the real, you know, the most fruitful place to advertise in the long run is places like Facebook where people actually go and they're immersed in the stream. And here they just, the advertising unit so much better. It's part of the stream. People are immersed in it. They're looking at it. And that's an, that's a natural place for it to go. And meanwhile, uh, and so what's happened is Facebook is now integrating. They're integrating the kind of front door, the stream with advertising. And it's super lucrative. It's super – they're going to make a ton of money. They already are making a ton of money. And everyone else, as predicted in the value chain, is getting totally commoditized. So basically your New York Times now is competing with Vox or competing with your local newspaper or competing with – literally competing with pictures of your sister's baby. Like they they are all in the same sort of stature in the newsfeed, and and so the just the, the 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 where the power is has shifted, and that shift is two parts. I've mostly written about and focused on how that's raised Facebook stature and power, but the flip side is it's very much diminished all the traditional forms of power and stature in 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 the media in particular. Mm. I yeah. I, sorry. Keep going. No, You're on a roll. No, no, it's fine. So, so this process broadly, what what I think the real thing with aggregation theory when I talked about it was that I realized this was happening not just in the media, but it was happening in lots of industries. Right? This it's what's happening in, with with Uber. It's what's happening uh, with parts of Amazon's business. Happening with parts of Google. Absolutely. And what is the big thing about this is it's a shift from. Uh, the supply side mattering to the demand side mattering, where where if you control the demand side, and in this case, it's the end user, and the end user, uh, when you own that, when you own that entry point, all the suppliers, whether they be content suppliers, whether they be drivers, whether they be whatever, you, uh, you know, chip makers or, or server makers, they are forced to they're basically modularized and commoditized mm. and lose pricing power and have to do what the the aggregator says and the aggregator and what's particularly uh 
scary if you look at it or compelling from an investment standpoint and I think has driven a lot of like the crazy investment as well as pursuing these opportunities is because the internet has no distribution costs. You can scale hugely and no transaction costs. You can handle all the customers in the world. Facebook can serve every customer in the world. Basically, every additional user is zero marginal cost mm-hmm. to them. And and so the the power in, in, in is is massive and the flip side of the power being massive is the power of everyone else is diminished like it's like a uh like a you know what goes in one side must go out the other sort of thing and um and so that's broadly that that's aggregation theory media is i think the easiest place one of the easiest places to see it but that's the theory and kind of you know big picture so uh, interesting on a number of levels it's it's like a, a micro it's like a on a macro level kind of what uh what I, what you'd observe in uh industry so uh, on a smaller scale you'd see it within industries uh, i remember something like this being described in uh uh christensen in the innovators uh solution talking about the uh, law of conservation of attractive profits and right absolutely and that's one of the foundational pieces and i actually wrote about that the week before I, I wrote the aggregation theory piece because it, it's a core piece, absolutely. And it was just really fascinating, uh, fascinating to see how at one stage it becomes, depending on where you are in the development of, uh, where you are in the development of the industry, where you are uh, in terms of what's abundant and what's scarce and how performance evolves and what's good enough and what's not, the profits collect in one part, whether it's the PC manufacturers or the chip manufacturers or the operating system manufacturers and as the performance evolves over time and what people care about changes, uh, like whether they become overserved or underserved, it collects in different places. But your observation of how this is happening on the internet and it's happening with these companies uh, basically controlling all the supply or figuring out how to deliver a great experience for users and commoditizing all the supply behind is just such a great way of describing it and thinking about it. No, that's exactly right. And again, I'll say it again, and I'll link to the piece that like the foundational theory for aggregation theory is the conservation of attractive profits. Like, and this idea that profits follow integration and when integration shifts in the value chain, the profits follow. Mm. I think the key piece that I've been that my goal to add with aggregation theory was adding on the impact of internet economics, mm. which is the zero marginal cost, zero transactional cost, and what that means about this happening at scale. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that's in, in it, like, so it, it's actually building on that, but it makes it m- even more profound in a way we've talked about many times how, the, mm. you know, yes, it, it's a perfect example of what we talked about when we were complaining about business school before. This idea that these core theories, yes, they do actually apply to the internet, but just the impact of zero marginal cost is so profound, it's almost like an entirely new theory completely. Mm. And so I will gladly admit that oh. that's a core part. Of, no, no, I, I, I'm not saying you were criticizing. I'm saying I will gladly admit that's a core part of it. And I, if anything that characterizes my writing, it's taking a lot of these core theories and just saying, what if we make this one thing zero? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, and everyone knows right. if you insert zero into an equation, the whole thing gets all screwed up. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, but my suspicion of you raising this is not to talk about this again because we've talked about it a few times before. But but perhaps because there might be some insight that's generated into the political landscape as a result of taking this view of it. Right. Well, I mean, there's the obvious view, which is that social media is super important now. And and yes, that absolutely absolutely the case. But what's interesting is if you look at this structurally, uh, the 
in the place of formerly these newspapers and editors, and then combined with that, buying ads on these platforms, and so which meant all the donors and all the people who contributed money. That's like the power, the power in the political process was directly connected to these gatekeepers in reaching users slash voters. Which means if the gatekeepers are no longer that important, if they're losing money, money is an analogy for them also losing influence and power. And so by extension, if you had an entire apparatus that was built around these gatekeepers that don't really matter anymore, then the implication is that that apparatus is much less valuable and much less powerful than it was before. Mm-hmm. And, and and so you you uh, I you know I kind of use as as lever this this book the party decides um, which which I actually uh, didn't it's bit, it's a bit of a controversial book it's been very impactful but this idea was there was a thought you know getting the arca- arcane of kind of U.S. politics but in the it used to be in U.S. politics like people would literally meet in like <laughs> smoky rooms and like choose who would be the presidential mm-hmm. nominee. And probably the the most famous example was 1968 when, uh, unfortunately, uh, that was the year that Robert Kennedy was assassinated. But Hubert Humphrey didn't even run in a primary. He didn't even bother because uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was stepping down, uh, had decided that he was going to be the next nominee. And he still controlled a lot of the political machinery of the Democratic Party. And, like, he he didn't even – and so that kind of prompted a series of reforms that happened in both parties. And they happened in different ways. But the general idea was, no, actually, we should shift – like, this is bad. It's undemocratic. Uh, We're going to have actual – the people choose. And that's where we got the primary system – Today, which uh, there's always been a primary system, but the, but it matters much more, the, and the, the 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 number of delegates that are ascribed to it, mm. and much there's much more of an expectation that super delegates, which the Democrats have, Republicans have something that's slightly different, that they'll fall in line with the popular vote if it's if it's you know very clear what it is, and so there was a lot of thought and kind of conventional wisdom was that meant the party kind of lost control of the presidential nomination process. Like it really was about who could run the best campaign, who could convince most people for them, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the thesis of the party decides was that actually now nothing's really changed because there is this apparatus that vets candidates, that gives them money, that uh, gives them staffing, that does all this sort of stuff that makes a presidential campaign viable. Like no one can just spring up and run a campaign. They need all this stuff Mm -hmm. to go along with it. And because of that, actually the parties still exert uh, a significant, if not complete control over the sort of the nomination process. And, And I think that was probably largely fair, but, you know, stuff's gotten a little messier over the last couple elections in a way it didn't in the mm. sort of sort of 80s and 90s and um and a lot of that is due is due to the web and it, and the implication is you know the rise of these different channels is mirrored again by the decline in the importance of these other channels that do require the, all that apparatus and, and sort of thing and so the the um uh kind of explaining why that was the case was, was the goal here. So I'm, I'm 
trying to think of uh, the. Sorry, the, that might be a little dry and boring. No, I, it's, <laughs> it, it's it's really interesting. The 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 metaphor here is uh, we were in an old. Let, let's equate the candidates to retailers, and it would be who would end up winning in the retail world. It, it had a whole bunch of uh, it, it had a whole bunch of elements to it, like you the relationship with suppliers, your ability to secure um, good real estate, uh, all like all these all these various things and and the analogy that's happening here is this is like Amazon completely redefining it changing the nature of the game and suddenly it's uh, there's an unlimited amount of shelf space you're able to go directly to consumers if if they if and and in this sense the suppliers are or are almost the uh, are almost like the uh, political machines it's all all the all the stuff on the back end that now is just made uh, kind of irrelevant because you can go directly to the consumers. If people have a great experience with Amazon, why do I need to worry about all these things that are out in the physical world? Is that fair or, or can I can I do a better job with that metaphor? No, I think I, I think it's fair. I mean, it, it's just it's just this, this aspect that there's been um, – there's yeah, I think what what is fair is this idea that there has been a paradigm shift, mm. not to use the word paradigm, but there's been a paradigm shift, and, and that changes that changes what matters. But I think uh, in this specific case, what what I, what I was interested in exploring here was so much of because what, what I'm not saying is that there's new aggregators or something like that. What, what the point to bring in the aggregation theory was to explain how the traditional power of the party, even if it got shifted from smoke-filled rooms to all this apparatus and machinery sort of angle, that that left voters with the illusion of choice, but mm. actually it had already been decided, mm. which was kind of the insinuation of or, or the, the conclusion of the party decides. Uh, th- what happened was all that stuff that the party controlled has been made obsolete. And what's, what's interesting is actually th- that doesn't mean it, th- there is no like necessarily a replacement though like the most powerful political actor theoretically would be facebook or google or the other aggregators because they have direct access to voters right and i know you've raised the concern that all oh, facebook you know they, they have so much control their algorithm and stuff like that and and i and so structurally and theoretically uh, I can get that. Do you want? Do you want to? Do you want to tell me why that makes you concerned before I tell you why you're wrong? Yeah, I, it makes me concerned because I mean, it's the concentration of power. I mean, you, you know what I'm going to say. The concentration of power in any one or very few actors' hands is is not a healthy thing in a democracy. Uh, one of like you you want a variety of viewpoints and you want a variety of you 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 don't want the power. <laughs> I, I always come of it, uh, come at it from the perspective of thinking about it in a in a place, uh, a regime where there's control of the news and how you think it's kind of crazy until you get over there in a place like China or more extreme North Korea and you realize how effective it can be when one single actor is able to control the information that people can consume. And if you are not exposed to these varied viewpoints, if they can't get to you, then you can actually start to control what people think just by virtue of what you expose them to. 
So the quiz for our readers is, did James just say that or did I copy that over from a previous episode? <laughs> 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 mm. No, okay. It's fair. No, I, I I say that I say that endearingly. Um, but what I think, and as we've discussed, and I will have to find which episode it was. Uh, my contention is it's very different because it's different when the government is controlling access to the internet right. versus self-selecting into not just a private company but a private company whose whose valuation is based on having everybody on on the service. And we talked talked about this in the context of privacy and advertising, that a big reason I'm actually not particularly concerned. In fact, if anything, I entrust my personal data more to Google and and Facebook than I would to some other companies, including ones like Apple, is because they are so heavily incentivized to keep my data secure because it's their ownership of my data that makes them valuable, right? Yeah. so, I, so the incentives are so powerful in this direction, and I would argue that you can make the same argument about any sort of explicit tampering with the algorithm to get a favored sort of outcome. Like, if if that would ever be revealed or come out, and I feel – and I think it would be uh, – like the loss of trust and users in those platforms would be would be very profound in a way that would dramatically impact their valuation whatever whatever minuscule gain they might gain from making that sort of thing would not would be far outweighed by the risk in in messing around with it well i uh, so i uh, i agree with you in part that they do have an incentive to look after user data um, they uh, that that's definitely the case. Like a big part of their valuation rests on the data that they have and their unique access to it. But their incentive is that their incentives don't necessarily align to ones of trust. In the and I, I mean I I feel somewhat more confident in saying this because there are examples of Facebook having uh, experimented on uh, on their users. Facebook is about driving, like they want to drive engagement, and and the emotional thing, like yes, for all the problems with the study, at the end of the day, it was seeing which emotions lead to more engagement, like like that's what Facebook does. But the implication, so anyhow, let's not dwell on this. Mm-hmm. Grant me, mm-hmm. grant me for a moment the assumption, whether you agree or not, mm-hmm. grant me yep. the assumption that Facebook does not want to actively be partisan. It does not actively want to push one side or the other. Will you, will you grab I, me that? I, 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 um, as long as you promise we can come back to it again at some point. So yes, you, you, think, you think Facebook wants to actively push one party over the other? No, I, I think where it would get interesting is if, for example, there was, for whatever reason, a politician desi- decided to implement regulation that directly impacted Facebook. Yes, they're fundamentally self-interested. Of course they will. But that's that's very different. Like, I, it, we've already seen that. We saw that with the SOPA thing. Like, all, all these internet properties, like, I don't, I don't, actually, I don't think Facebook participated in that off the top of my head. Um, uh, maybe they did. I, I can't remember if I'm right. Um, but, like, yes, but my, the entire point is this, like, we've talked about incentives for 69 episodes now. Facebook mm-hmm. is going to, Facebook's incentives are aligned to help Facebook. And, mm-hmm. And that means driving engagement, and of course, it means pushing back against uh, stuff that that goes directly directly against them. And no, Facebook did, did not participate in that. Uh, but 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 I think that's a great example of Facebook not participating in the SOPA blackout. And the reason is because it's it's bad for business. Like it just 
like and and at the end of the day, Facebook can't afford to be viewed as being any sort of partisan actor because their entire value that is predicated on everybody being on Facebook. And as soon as you start taking sides, you're going to turn off a huge number of people and it would be suicidal to do that. So again, your question to me was, um, uh, would I, would I grant you that the assumption that they'll never be, never be partisan? Um, I agree with that until something directly may threaten them. And then I think they could get partisan. But I, again, I think we should keep going. All right. So you will grant me that Facebook's not going to be partisan. So, yes. what, so getting back to the, the, the political discussion, what it, this, this is actually very interesting. And the reason it's interesting is the entity that has absorbed all the power – from the previous power brokers, right? We see this economically. All the economic benefits of content creation flow to Facebook. Not in the content providers or the newspapers and all these, these sort of guys. They're all like penniless and like, you know, throwing up as much crap as they can in instant articles so people can, can, can click on them and they'll maybe get, get you know, some crumbs. It's very sad. Uh, but what's interesting is, well, that's happened from a monetary perspective, from a political perspective by virtue of Facebook not taking part in the political process, at least overtly or intentionally, mm. there's a vacuum. Like there, there's really, there's no one that is, that is taking the space because Facebook doesn't want that. Even though they're in the position to exercise it, they don't want to exercise it. So basically, we're in this environment from a political perspective where no one has power or everyone's on the same footing. Mm. And so in this environment uh, – and again, I get this all – I think I – edited this from the last podcast but I'll leave it in now like when I write these things I'm not saying these are absolute rules and like this is the way things are forever you don't need to bring me like a, a counterpoint or a detail or I'm, I'm just saying th there's a trend like there's mm -hmm. there's a directionally in, in this perspective and so what happens is you get in these uh, you get in these areas where the ability to differentiate and to break through the noise as it were becomes significantly more valuable than before because you can't rely on the party to break you to help you break through the noise because the party's you know what they can do is 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 not nearly as strong as it used to be and then you have someone coming along who's a former you know reality TV star saying things that some segment of the population clearly you know believes in and claims he's telling it like it is and it, suddenly someone like Donald Trump getting traction despite the fact the party is ardently opposed to him starts to make more sense and you could argue a similar thing with Bernie Sanders on the other side again not to say they're the same people but this idea that someone who despite the complete opposition of the party establishment gets traction it happened there. You can see it in the UK too with the, with the um, what's it, Jeremy Corbyn, like the, the 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 labor guy who again opposed by the establishment, but breaks through. And why why are they breaking through? Because one, there's so many more channels to break through. But it's not just a function of there being more channels. It's that the channels that used to matter are dramatically weakened. You can almost see it 
starting to 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 spring to life over the last few election cycles as well like um, Howard Dean might have been one of the first examples of this on the Democratic side where he started to get a bit of traction. He didn't have any of the machinery and he was kind of a fringe candidate, but it was anti-war and he started to use blogs. And um, was he one of the first ones to get online donations going? Yep, and yep, then no- it, it, it was almost the same thing with Obama as well. He was an outsider candidate at the beginning. People were completely dismissive, but he built this fantastic political machinery and uh, it's uh, it, it propelled him it propelled him to the top in 2008. Right. No, exactly. And I, I linked to this excellent tweet storm. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. I, I excerpted some of it on on my um, in the post by by Clay Shirky, basically going through this this history. And he has more context in the tweet storm, so it's worth reading the whole thing about how it's not just about the the web parts, but also that there's always been things that factions have believed, but has been deemed unacceptable by kind of the broader core. And because the big thing in the U.S., especially in a because the U.S. is a winner take all system, uh, which is interesting. The primaries are proportional in many respects, not all of them, but winner take in any winner take all system, you're going to end up with two political parties because mm-hmm. it's just not viable to, well, although I guess the UK is kind of a weird exception, but you kind of get the case in the UK too, where different parts of the country, only two of the th- parties are, 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 tend to be viable. Um, because there's it, the second and third place parties are heavily incentivized to coordinate. Um, mm. And so the issue of having only two parties, though, is there's way more than two views, right? And so you have these these coalitions that are hard to keep together. And this was another really interesting point. Um, I think the party decides it's a good book. And, and even though I think it's weakening, there's lots of smart things in it. And one thing that's really smart is the way they redefined what a party is. And they're like, a party is not just politicians. They're like, actually, politicians are very res- – they're, they're arguably – one of the less important parts. Uh, and specifically what it's in their point was, it's all these people that have a heavily vested interest in policy outcomes and, and act on those. And so that includes donors it includes the people who, you know, the activists like labor unions or church organizations or all these sorts of things that, that actually put in lots of effort and work to, because they care about the policy outcome. And those are the people that they were saying are the ones that kind of help select the presence and, and they go back and forth and select the, the nominees. That this idea that it, it basically becomes a collection of special interests and everyone is spiky and focused on one different thing. And, you know, if it wasn't for the present circumstance we're in and we can maybe we get into why this present circumstance doesn't lend itself uh, to, to necessarily such a great outcome. But if it wasn't for the present circumstance we find ourselves self in, your description of that old system where it's it's all these groups that just have one or two big issues they care about and they're just pushing for that and then they coalesce around these one or two big issues versus candidates going out to the people and connecting with people directly. Like if you asked me to choose between those two systems Again, in the absence of the, the situation we seem to find ourselves in right now, I'd much prefer this system that we're emerging right now where you cut out all these crappy middlemen and you go from politicians directly to the people. Yeah, we should come back to that because uh, it's a great point worth 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 debating. But but let's say for like what are like five five minutes? I think that's the next mm-hmm. that's the next thing to talk about. But the the implication of this in in in, uh, in the party decides was they described the issue is these people in the party they they're actually not concerned about majoritarian 
issues. They're not concerned about what the voters want. The voters are a means to an end for them to accomplish their policy goals. And the implication of that is that the party's interests, and by party I mean this group of people who have their own separate interests, and again, it gets messy, but it's not necessarily perfectly aligned with voter interests. Mm-hmm. And 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 so what's interesting right now, and this is kind of the payoff of, of this analysis that I'm talking about, is so we get in this environment, we have the situation where the party's interests and the proposals and policies that they care about are not necessarily aligned with voters' interests. And I think, for example, you know, just in the Trump example, there's lots of examples of Trump supporters aren't big like tax cuts for the rich. They're not supporting taxes for the mm-hmm. rich. They, they support like welfare or social security and stuff like that, that right. generally the Republican elite is tend to be more opposed to. Right? right. And so that, that's just a concrete example of what I think this is talking about. But what happens is when the party infrastructure that held that all together starts to become weakened and these other channels become stronger. And meanwhile, there's a vacuum between the one entity that actually does have the potential to control things. Uh, Suddenly, it matters who can actually get voters' attention, and how can you get voters' attention by telling them what they what they want to hear. And someone said, "Oh, you're being very cynical." But I'm not saying no. Like it's like retail politicking. Like this is what voters believe, and so I am going to say that because they believe that and they want to support that. And and that's and there's no question. I think whether leaving aside the what you think of. Donald Trump's statements and views. I included this this survey information that from the New York Times is super interesting. Like every single state that he's won, the dominant factor that people say why they support Donald Trump is because he tells it like it is. And like if that's not a way to say he says what I already think, then I'm not sure, you know, that that's like basically what it is. And he's out there, he already had a head start because of his celebrity and and his ability to to self-fund. But He's out there telling voters what they want to hear, and voters, I'm not surprised that they're that they're responding. Now, there's a whole separate discussion about whether the problems with what he says and why people want to support that, which I think is good for a political podcast, not necessarily this podcast. But I don't think in this context it's a surprise. Yeah, it's it's um, it's. The the whole dynamic is interesting. It's it's fascinating. I, I I'm biting my tongue because I want to do exactly what you said we shouldn't do, which is it's a technology, not a political podcast. So I'm just gonna bite my tongue a little bit. And I, or am I? Am I? I'm about to. I'm <laughs> deciding whether. Or, no, I'm not gonna bite my tongue. Do you know what this this is? It's this feels to me like um he feels to me a little bit like America's version of Karl Marx. And this is going to, that's going to sound like an extreme statement at face value in that I think he's actually done a pretty damn good job of identifying a lot of problems. Um, and so, for example, uh, the, the, the fact that um, a whole bunch of politicians are traditionally uh, uh, they kowtow to elites or big donors. I mean, he's made that a big part of his. Um, he's made that a big part of 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 his speeches and whatever. Um, in in fact, on on some level, I even understand his mistrust of foreigners uh, and how uh, foreigners have um, 
or, 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 or countries overseas and that, that they are, they are uh, affecting America's economy. Like I, I think that he's actually right and he's right for a lot of the reasons we've talked about. Like the, the, well, the, that the, maybe you've talked about because I disagree with almost everything you said to now, so don't include me in this. Okay, well, no, but like the rise of China, for example, that's been a wonder. It's been a wonderful thing for China, and it's been a wonderful thing for some people who've controlled capital in the U.S. But it's been a pretty bad. Um, it's been pretty bad for uh, labor in the U.S., for example. Now, uh, identifying those things, my problem with him is not in identifying them. And what's interesting is that Bernie Sanders on the other end of the spectrum is identifying a lot of the same issues. My problem with Trump is more of the prescriptions that he has for fixing them. Building a wall or bringing manufacturing back, like just telling Apple that you're going to, building a wall and stopping immigration is not going to, is not going to stop all these forces that have been resulting in American jobs moving offshore. Uh, like the prescriptions around which he's, so he's, I, I feel like he's accurately identifying the problems. My issue with the identification is that his jump to solutions is so simplistic and he's not going to do anything to fundamentally solve them. That's where I have the big problem with him. So, um, <laughs> uh, you see, I'm going to have to disagree with everything you said. First off, mm. uh, I totally I get the point you're making with Karl Marx. Um, Karl Marx, for all his issues, was a tremendous intellectual and mm. like right. was very compelling. And <laughs> Trump is not that at all. So, I get you're trying to say like you think his prescriptions are right, but his solutions are bad, which is a, the you know way to characterize Marx for sure. Right. Um, but. I mean, that's a that's a little bit of a bridge too far for me and my background in political philosophy. Um, no, I, I I think that's not that really I'm a Marxist. I'm just saying, like, like go and read the guy's books. I mean, they're oh no no no, very I, well I agree. Out. And and to say that Marx, to say that Trump is a intellectual on the level of Marx is 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 not what I'm trying to uh, is not what I'm trying to say at all. It's more just that people who are able to accurately identify problems and compellingly talk about the problems, uh, uh, fr uh, fr talking to the populace, if you're able to accurately and honestly and speak in a language that people understand, if you're able to give them, if they feel like that you're identifying their problem, you have their attention. And I feel like that's the parallel I'm trying to draw. I think that's what Marx very successfully did. And that is both what Sanders and Trump are doing right now. They are speaking to the problem that lots of people feel and they're speaking to it in a way that it's resonating with these, these folks. Where I have more of the issue is some of the solutions that they're proposing to deal with these issues. And that's where I think these guys, Marx, uh, Trump and even Sanders. That's where I feel like they're running off the rails a little bit. Um, well, congratulations on me not wanting to get into politics and instead ending up defending Karl Marx. Yeah. So um, I'm not okay. sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how I walked into that one. But um, the the uh, what? Uh, well, uh, okay. Um, sorry, this might get slightly political. I disagree with. I I still disagree with almost everything you said. Uh, for for one, I don't think the prescription to the to the problems is is accurate at all. I mean, the, the, but this is something we've talked about. I mean, take like th this matter of the shift in the economy. Uh, I think looking at things historically, it's reasonable to presume that in the very long run, everyone is going to be better off and richer. There is, you know, there's very uh, sound 
theoretical reason to think so of you know things like um, comparative advantage idea that U.S. keeps the vast majority of value from things like the iPhone uh, that sort of thing like and those sort of manufacturing jobs and work one. Yes, you can make the scale argument, which is absolutely the case, and the machinery argument, the machinist argument, things like that. But broader, those aren't jobs that we should we should strive to have in the U.S. Uh, you know, and in the long run, the U.S. will be better off. But in the short run, yes, there is tons of pain. And like I said, I'm from the industrial Midwest. I'm very familiar with with that, and it's a real thing. We've talked about that 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 on our podcast. I guess I would just make the distinction that. Yes, maybe he's identifying a problem that is felt by by some people. That doesn't mean his identification is is the right one. Um, mm, second, oh, secondly, well, secondly, sorry. Uh, I, I oh, I think we've talked about this. Maybe only off offline. I don't think the buying of the quote unquote buying of leaders is. Uh, I don't think that's the biggest issue in U.S. politics. The 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 quote unquote you know corruption of of the political class. Um, I think the biggest problem in U.S. politics is uh, gerrymandering and the fact that there are no competitive elections and the 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 person that you most need to fear is your primary opponent, which drives people in Democratic districts to the left and drives people in Republican districts to the right and does not drive anyone to the center. And that combined with the undemocratic nature of the Senate in which a state like Wyoming – gets two senators and stay like California gets two senators makes it profoundly unrepresentative of the U S as a whole. Like that's mm. like we have two bodies our two legislative bodies are, are profoundly uh, undemocratic in opposite directions. Like so, the, so, so yeah, the, okay. to me, to me, the, to, and then you combine that with the fact the presidential system in which it's not clear who has responsibility for the outcome of the country, like because the president is 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 elected separately from Congress as opposed to parliamentary mm. system where like it's very clear who is responsible and there's a clear mm. recourse if there is no direction forward you call an election. Like mm. I, I think the bigger problems for the U.S. are structural. I think the we we have the culture and ability to overcome the challenges of a presidential system if we didn't have this gerrymandering slash unrepresentative Senate issue that really fouls up Congress. Like if if, the, if Congress is much more representative uh, in the House by being more competitive elections and in the Senate by being more representative of the population as a whole, I think we would be in much better shape. And and I, I think the 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 politicians buying being bought off is 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 small potatoes compared to the structural issues. Well, but let's park the let's park the money for a second. Uh, we talked about how the party infrastructure is failing at the start of the podcast, uh, and and you characterized well, not you the the party decides the authors in that book characterized it as a collection of special interests. And even if you put aside the money, I think one of the one of the things that's coming to light as a result of the difference between the Republican voters and the Republican Party elite is that the Republican Party has been held hostage to the special interests that have resulted in in uh, them taking the party, although they'll court those voters, I think the characterization in the past of them just being a means to an end. So you kind of play to the issues that you think uh, will get you the votes, but then you start enacting policies like uh, tax cuts for the rich. And I think this is the this is the issue that that I think Trump has successfully identified. Whether you want to call it a money in politics or whether you want to you want to attribute it to the party machinery. 
it's it's this notion that the way that the party and the 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 people that the party have allowed through have been acting have not been consistent with what a vast majority of the voters for that party necessarily want. And I think that's that's kind of what I meant by, by Trump's um, I, uh, identification of the issue in that it's it's basically just run for the people who, who have the money, quote unquote. Now, the money is correlated with the elites that have been running the party, but I guess that was more the point I was trying to make there. Yeah, and, and, and that's fair. And I think that that's absolutely, there's no question that's the case. I think the and this is why, but again, this is this is tied to, um, I guess I guess the the challenge in a two party system or in any sort of representative democracy, and, and there's always been a tension uh, when it comes to like theor- Of course, theoretically, we all want more democracy. But then it turns out when we get more democracy, sometimes it's not it's not so great. I mean, you can see this from some of the sort of noxious comments that Trump has made that are received warmly uh, in in some quarters. And again, uh, it remains a minority of the Republican Party, much less of of the country. But you also see things like I mean, California. California is a is a mess in many respects, in part because they have this referendum system mm-hmm. where stuff gets passed that, like, look at a lot of stuff around California and, and, and ownership. Part of it is because uh, you're so heavily incentivized to sit on property because your your property taxes are locked into, like, th- uh, the value of the house when you bought it, like, decades ago. Like, mm-hmm. there's all these weird stuff about California that favors the people who were there first. And thank Think that's because California is more democracy. Let's have referendums where people vote directly yeah. on these issues, and or like there's a bunch of stuff with California schools are impacted by this. And like, is that like it, it? It gets at how I mean, we're turning super political here, but the 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 challenges of of democracy are are significant and. But this is why what I'm talking about is is so interesting because it's easy to look at what Facebook has done by mm. re- by reducing the power mm. of these institutions. And I'm using Facebook as a catch-all because they're the most dominant. Yeah. But obviously, this applies right. to I – mean, Trump is obviously most famously Twitter. on Twitter, right? But – but then again, all the interaction about Trump is happening on Facebook. He's dominating mm-hmm. the conversation on Facebook. Um, and uh, I linked to some numbers in a footnote in my piece. Um, yeah, what the, are, the just, implication just for of, those who haven't seen? What are, give me a sense of those numbers? I didn't see the footnotes. Um, How much are we talking about? So, if you look at the the number of of interactions on Facebook, this is the mm. number of. So, first, there's two there's two categories. One is unique people. The number of unique people who have mentioned a candidate. Trump is first with 29 million. Uh, Hillary second with 17 million. Bernie Sanders with 14.6 million. Uh, fifth is Ted Cruz down to nine million, and Marco Rubio five million. So Donald Trump is triple his closest Republican rival in Facebook. In the unique, unique people talk about Facebooks. When you talk about the total interactions, which is the number of times they're mentioned on Facebook, and I don't have the time frame on this. And oh, sorry, January. This is one month, January twenty eighth through February twenty seventh. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump was mentioned on Facebook one hundred and ninety seven million times. 
The next wow. closest Republican was Cruz with 56 million, and then Marco Rubio with 23 million. And Cruz is an outsider too. Cruz is a guy that's appealing directly to evangelicals in particular, right? And he's not liked by the party establishment either. We have a situation on Facebook where the two outsiders are being mentioned 250 million times, 10 times more than the alleged preference of the party establishment, Marco Rubio. Like it's, it's, it's not even remotely competitive on Facebook. And so that shows that the party still has some power. The fact that in some respects, the fact that their guy is still somewhat competitive in, despite the fact when it comes to like the people's forum, like there, he's not competitive at all. Hmm. It's nuts. I mean, I, I'm glad you brought it back to Facebook. It, it's, um, I, I, I allow me. Well, to but, but we're, we're getting we're getting more we're getting more democracy thanks to Facebook. Like that's, that's no, I know. That's and just, and this 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 was the point of the conversation. Like if you describe the um, if you describe the two scenarios beforehand, where you have uh, politicians going directly to voters, or you have the party machinery kind of vetting everybody, and these party machines being this these coalitions of one or two issue groups all vying to get their issues to the top. Like if you describe those two things to me conceptually I would much prefer the politicians um, the politicians going directly to the people I guess the compounding factor is right now and there's a bunch of research that's come out trying to explain why this is but I think the compounding issue is right now that there are so many people in the electorate right now that are feeling pain and that are feeling hurt for various reasons that these more these more extreme um, uh, these more extreme candidates just seem to be getting a lot more traction. And it's just a shame that these two forces are coalescing at the same time. Well, I mean, there, there's always been a populist sentiment in the U.S. And I think in the U.S. it's specifically known as kind of the Jacksonian sort of tradition for, for Andrew Jackson, this idea of the internal guys are all corrupt. We need to bring in outsiders. We need to clean house. Um, and, you know, the U.S. needs to be strong but not – getting involved overseas and all this sort of stuff. Like there, this, this is a definite strain in the U S and, you know, a lot of what, uh, beyond the fact that a lot of what Trump's, you know, talking about is, is, is populism one one but it's in the very name populism. The idea is that it, it, they're popular opinions that appeal to some broad swath of society. And yes, the, the fact that the traditional, power brokers are weakened and the traditional ways to distribute information are weakened. And the fact that advertising doesn't matter as much as it did because there's there's Facebook and, and, and Twitter and all that sort of stuff means that the popular sentiment that's frowned upon by the elites is able to get is able to get much more traction, and and you you think and you can look at this. It's easy to say, oh, the, what the internet is doing is great. You know, oh, you know, oh, so so sorry, New York Times, so sorry, or little local newspapers. Like, but you know, you know, we everyone can make money. Like, I mean, the the issue actually, Fred Fred Wilson wrote, a, wrote you know his kind of quarterly post defending Twitter being like the Twitter contradiction, right? Oh, it's clearly so, so important. And we, we're a believer in it. But as we talk about Twitter, you can be very, very valuable and still be worthless, right? And that's the big challenge with the internet is in this idea of, their, of I, I wrote a post a few years ago about friction, the idea that friction is going away. The problem is friction is how you make money and friction is how you exert control. And the implications of that going away uh, we we don't know. Like we just we just don't know what what it might be. I think I wrote at the end of that friction piece. Change is guaranteed, but the type of change is not. Never is that more true than today. See, friction makes everything harder, both the good we can do, but also the unimaginably terrible. 
In our zeal to reduce friction and our eagerness to celebrate the good, we ought to not lose sight of the potential bad. We are creating the future, and better does not win by default. It's um, it, it's a really interesting. I, I mean, so uh, th- this notion that that the that the changes happening in the in the electoral system and the views of the electorate and the the number of people that are feeling hurt i, I like on one hand it's um I, I feel it's kind of it's it's a bad combination of things but one of the themes that's come up time and time again is that and it relates exactly to to that quote from that piece that you just read is that as we go through these revolutions whether it's the industrial revolution or the internet revolution that there is large scale um social um upheaval and uh what's interesting here is that two of the effects of the internet seem to be uh, in a certain sense uh, happening at the same time on the one hand there is uh that this massive information revolution is causing a whole bunch of uh, social upheaval throughout um, uh, throughout the rust belt or all, all these all these areas that have traditionally been relatively stable and at the same time it's enabling the politicians to go directly to the people that have been affected and it's interesting watching these two things happen both at the same time and it's kind of scary too well it's it's it, 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 well it's it's a glass half full half empty thing I think on the the glass half half empty is uh, it, it 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 means that these you know we're going to have people in power we might not want to have power and policies that we might not want. On the flip side, it might be maybe it's a pressure valve and like there's the pressure will be released in a way that doesn't result in like in the industrial revolution in wars and and yeah. that that sort of thing. I mean, I think that's that's the that's the sort of optimistic take on 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 what's happening. But no, I think your point's very well made. Like these two things are are interrelated uh and now they're kind of feeding off each other uh, i think that's a that's a very astute point I, it's um i i i i risk um firing up the uh, firing up a, another debate that we've had one of i guess my frustration with um, one of my concerns around Facebook, and not to go back to the, the the one that we had before, I don't I don't want to touch on that again. But one of my concerns is this um, focus on engagement um, is it, it, it they have figured out ways of. Um, I hope I can make this point. Well, I think it highlights the tribalism, right? Because you get so you get reinforced what you want to hear. And you get more shut off from outside views because you just keep liking and clicking the stuff that appeals to you and and you get more fragmented, not less. Right. And I guess this is the point that I was going to make. There's this concept that I came across recently. It's a, uh, it was talked about by Aristotle and Socrates of, of acrasia, which is basically the tendency for folks to do things that are against their own best interests. And I think um, – it's it's th- this focus on engagement and focus on making things so addictive and getting people engaged and and feeding back to them the things that are going to engage them the most. Your description of tribalism, it's like you feed folks these extremely divisive issues and you get them to focus on that because it's so engaging, because they can't let go of these internet debates. I mean, I, 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 on, I don't 
yeah, it drives up engagement and it, it creates this, well, it creates this tribalism, it drives up engagement. But when you step back and you think about the impact that it has on society, I, I like, I'm not necessarily sure that I like the direction it's taking us. No, and, and it's a, it's a fair point. And the idea of there being these gatekeepers, uh, is this aspect of, you know, I think we've, I, I've definitely written about this. So we've talked on the, on the podcast, but I mean, mm. uh, newspapers were incentivized to play it down the middle, right? Because they want to keep advertising coming in from all sides and mm. they want to keep access, access to everyone. And, uh, and you know, there's certainly like, yes. And it's easy to talk about bad stuff and they're being limited, limited opportunities for people to talk out and they're being, uh, and like corruption, for example, like there was, there's a classic example of, of the, the, I think the tea party came in or at some point they'd eliminated, um, pork barrel or pork projects, right? The bridge mm. to nowhere or and all this sort of stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 and yes, theoretically that's great, but you look at it holistically one, it really wasn't that much money going to these pork projects. And two, the pork projects were how compromise was achieved, right? It's like, okay, you vote for this thing that you'd rather not, but we'll build the bridge in your hometown or something like mm. that. And and it's a classic example where it all depends on the context you look at it. You looked mm. at narrowly, it's a terrible idea having the, like government pork and all this sort of stuff. And you could arguably say the same thing about, you know, about money and politics from uh, if you look at it in isolation, it's a very bad thing. When you look at it systematically, like it, it actually becomes a, a closer question. And, and again, like we can get, we're not, <laughs> despite our best efforts, we've felt somewhat turn this into a political debate. But I think the, the broader principles we've come back to again and again, this idea that nothing like, yes, something can be black and white, but as soon as you change your context or change one mm-hmm. variable, suddenly it becomes a lot grayer than you realize. And the importance of looking at things, not just in isolation, but systematically and how they play out over the long run and how incentives matter and how that determines things. Uh, you know, there's certainly no, this is, there's no greater example than the sort of stuff that we're talking about right now. I, I never thought I would hear someone mount an argument that would actually convince me that pork barreling might be a good thing, but you just did it. It's like, it, you're exactly right. It's it's a it's an example of compromise. And when you point to it in isolation, it's just one of these things that gets people frustrated and explains how things are so broken. But it's 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 a it's a it, it's political currency. It's like um, I'm going to you, you want your big thing to pass, okay? But I want my little thing, and I want something for my folks too. And in a sense, it, it's it's a way of of um, it, it, it's the, it has this it's the same effect as having money. It allows for exchange to happen. It allows for compromise. And you take these you take that away, and you limit yeah. the ability. For you're left, you're left with ideologues that are right. incapable of compromise. And and the problem is politics is the art of compromise. It's about finding right. what's in the middle. And and you see this what's happened in Washington. It's just this complete and utter refusal to compromise. And and yeah, it, it, and you could argue the same thing with with the money thing. You like when I describe what the party is as described in in, in the book the party decides mm. this idea that includes donors, right? That 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 probably puts up your red flags like, oh, we have money in politics, too much influence. But now if you look at it systematically, that also restrained pandering to the worst aspects of populist sentiment. Right? Mm. Like like yes, the Republican, as many people talk about, would, would dog whistle to these sort of 
areas, but no one was like, they weren't actually like, like the actual policies were different. And yes, that created the tension that seems to be erupting now, or so it seems, I don't want to get a political analyst, but, mm. but at the same time, you can see, well, maybe it wasn't the worst thing in the world, right? Even though I've, you know, I, you know, as you said before, you think that money in politics is such an awful thing. Well, you know, maybe it's a little grayer than it might, than it might seem at first glance. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 um, I'm willing to walk back on a, a lot of things, and I'm willing to be open-minded around this. Uh, the the framing of the political parties as um, as all these collection of special interests. I think, I think my, um, I think my, if you really peel it back, my. Uh, the money in politics thing for me wasn't so much the the outright principle of money in politics so much as it's this notion that um, everyone just focuses on the one cause that's important to them and that we end up deciding based on who pushes their one thing the hardest as opposed to stepping back and trying to make a um, a overall assessment of of like okay there are a bunch of voters and I need to I need to consider those and whether it's the money in politics way of coming at the problem or the special interests I, I guess that was that's more always been more my complaint that the politicians haven't been focused on serving the people it's been focused on serving these interests or these single interest things but now I'm kind of getting what I want with this uh, with this election so it seems and I must confess to not being like the taste of the medicine. <laughs> no, I agree. And that's why I've, I tend to lean towards, we just need like, at the end of the day, we just need compromise, right? Like in working in the middle. And that's why I'm more worried about structural things that limit, that limit, you know, working together, whether that be, be the gerrymandering, whether that be the lack of pork, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's interesting. My, my goal is just to make you, uh, uh, I, I like it when you're fired up and I get a, I'm just like the firefighter. I get to throw water on you. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, never let it be said that I'm not willing to listen and change my point of view. It's funny that, um, on this topic, like one of the things that came out, um, with the news of the passing of Scalia was how he was really good friends with Ruth Ginsburg. And, you know, like if there's one thing that I wish, uh, I, you know, like you get you get the three wishes of the genie or whatever. There's one thing I wish that there was a little bit more of in politics and in society today is a little bit more of that, like folks coming together that have very different points of view and recognizing that, yeah, you have a different point of view, but it's like a human being that doesn't have this ill intent on the other side. Just because they hold a different point of view, it's it doesn't mean they're out to get you or that they're evil incarnate. And I... Uh, I, it just feels like that kind of thing is increasingly rare nowadays. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think one of the things that I'm grateful for in my background um, is, you know, I grew. I mean, I mentioned I've, I've grew, I grew up evangelical and in the middle of like hardcore like right wing conservatism. I went to um, a huge public university with a very strong sort of protest tradition and element, and was. In, in the middle of campus politics and that sort of thing. Mm. And then I had a chance to live abroad. And, and again, it's, it's, it, we said this a couple episodes ago, it's, it's, I've had the opportunity to be uh, exposed to so many things that I don't know. And the awareness of what I don't know has increased. And that just, that that's, that's liberating. That's a great thing. And like, you know, I think a lot of people in, in where I grew up just fundamentally cannot understand liberals. 
They just don't understand what they're going on about. And they really do think like they're traitors and, and anti-American and like they actually believe it. And on the flip side, the liberals don't know what, what are you going on about? Like, I don't understand what you're coming from. And there's just a complete and utter divide, just zero interaction across. And, and in that respect, what I'm complaining about in Congress and stuff is a manifestation of the reality on the ground, that there's just a f- complete and utter misunderstanding. And yes, this is the concern of Facebook that it magnifies that. Right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, and yes, this is the, with everything, everything can go good and can go bad for me, for other defenders of the internet, the internet has opened my eyes to more things and has made me exposed to more things, but it's, it can go in the opposite direction just as easily. I, I, I think I, I feel, um, that this is a really good example of the tension between, um, uh, where, there's like user engagement and yeah, like keeping users engaged is definitely something that these sites um, are all vying for. Like you want people's attention, but how there can be a pretty dramatic tension between user engagement and like, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to loosely define this and I'm sure you're going to poke holes at me, but like quote unquote, good outcomes. Like I've seen research on like how it makes people unhappy, but this feels to me like a manifestation of how it's actually causing this discussion feels to me like a manifestation of how it's actually causing an increase in tribalism and an increase. It's playing to our worst natures because the parts of our worst natures are, are, to many of us, like the most engaging things. And you put that on social media and people just double down on it. Yeah. But then I guess the pushback is like, well, I mean, it, that, that, that was happening before social media and it, it would happen like the, the mm-hmm. cats out of the bag, you know, I mean, whether it be yeah. alternative news sources, talk radio, it was already happening. And, and so like, it, it's hard to ascribe faults to social media that are simply manifestations of our inherent problems no, of humanity. Yeah, that's fair. It's just it just seems to be accelerating it at at much greater a pace. Yeah, no, totally, absolutely. You see this with the the, the abuse stuff. I mean, uh, uh, Twitter's, I think, worse for this in part because of the anonymity, and and this gets at things like you need to think about how to control it. I mean, but you can like, there's probably always been these virulent misogynists and people around, but by the by the mores of mm. polite society, they're not going to say that to someone's face, right? But you get on, you know, you get behind a computer screen with an egg as an avatar, like let <laughs> loose, and and yeah. and yeah, and yeah. It, 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 but I, your your point your point is a good one because and I and I think I've come around on this a little bit too, and probably a big reason is because Twitter. Like, there's no question in my mind that that Twitter uh, left this problem to fester for far too long. And yes, they're making efforts now, but, but you know, it, it's like we've, I'm sure we've talked about context, like so many decisions that you make at the beginning, uh, matter in the long run. Mm. And I'm pretty sure no one at Twitter at the beginning, I mean, (laughs) Twitter could barely design itself to be functional period. I'm sure (laughs) no one was thinking about abuse at the beginning. Right. Right. And I also, suspect uh i have to look back i don't recall anyone on twitter's earliership team being female like this is why mm. this is why it matters right what what if someone had had been had experienced with that and said you know one thing to keep in mind is as we're building this with an anonymous network where anyone can message anyone we should keep in mind this might happen and that that never i'm i don't know for a fact but i 
would bet a whole lot of money. That conversation never, ever, ever in a million years happened. And it so, didn't happen until Twitter, what Twitter's mores and product was so baked in that now it's it's terribly hard to untangle and, and to make better. I have a confession to make on this, which is I see these posts about folks complaining about the abuse. And my natural reaction, which I, I feel a little bit guilty about, is like, what are they complaining about? Like, what's all the fuss about? I don't understand why they focus on this so much um, because I'm I'm the I'm the prototypical user that doesn't have to live through it. And one of I read I read one recently, someone quitting Twitter, and I I kind of get a little bit annoyed because I feel like it's a little bit self serving to announce it to the world to like, oh, I'm going to get some page views claiming you're quitting Twitter. But then I went and looked at a stream, and it's like, oh wow, like yeah, I I. I get it. And I'm kind of ashamed that my natural reaction was to ignore or to downplay their reaction to it just because I didn't think it was a problem because I hadn't experienced it myself. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I complain to you sometimes when people are annoying on Twitter and you're like, oh, just ignore it. That's like, you know, that's like, but that is your problem. You want to engage with them. If you have a fight with them, then it's really going to Twitter will drive you nuts. Right, but the, not- but, but the whole the whole point though is it's it's pathetic that I'm even slightly irked by like one in like 200 responses being mildly annoying. You know, imagine imagine if like 50% or 75% or more are not just annoying but straight up abusive. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, and and, and this is a it's a struggle for for, I mean, I, I was called out on this specifically when I wrote about that that Twitter needed a new CEO, and someone called me out on Twitter saying, like, you know, uh, no mention of abuse and the and the number of people that's driven away, and like saying this is a problem. And generally, in in, in the, the tech commentary, it is all white and male. And and my response to that was to kind of the, the hairs on my neck to bristle and be like, hey, come on, like I, I I'm just I'm out here as one guy trying to make a living. Like that's not fair. But you know what? She was totally right. Like when I wrote that article, I didn't really think about that. And I didn't think about that because it's not, it's not a lived experience for me. And, mm. uh, and it, that was dramatically eye opening for me personally. And I think, and that's an eye opening that like, this is why it matters because it doesn't just matter now to go back and patch up holes. It matters from day one in the way you think about the fundamental nature of your products and what you're doing and the long-term implications of that. And this is about Twitter and, and abuse. It's the same thing with Facebook and tribalism, like Facebook for all my arguments of Facebook, not having impact, they are having impact by just their very nature of what they are and how they do drive engagement. Your point is actually very well made. And, and I don't think that Facebook is really thinking about that. If they are good for them, I don't think they were thinking about that 10 years ago when they're building the product. Mm. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's interesting. And this is the thing, like the, 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 the like understanding the incentives or the the I, I mean I think about it like the objective function of what you've described as Facebook is engagement, but uh, I mean I, it's it's like the objective function of of 
food companies is to sell you as much food as possible. So they'll put in things that aren't necessarily good for you, but will cause you to buy lots of them, lots of sugar, lots of salt. And then we have an obesity epidemic. And it's like that that's when I see those gaps between what the incentives are for the company and what's good for people. And, and this notion of a, a crazier, which was just such a fantastic articulation of this thing that I've been struggling with when I noticed that gap between what's good for a company, what's good for the consumer, and maybe what's good for society in general when you roll up all those consumers, it started to put, langu- it, it put language to like this feeling that when those gaps exist, you start to get bad outcomes. You do, um, and and but with as with anything, there's a balance, right? The, the, if, mm. if your pushback is we should have... It's no, funny right. how it is, no. It's, I'm not saying you. I'm just saying it, the royal you. If you're pushback, yeah. it's funny that the same people who are concerned about uh, like these holes in the market tend to also uh, want to push um, more government regulation. But they're also the ones concerned about like money impacting government. Like like you're 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 kind of wrapping yourself around an axle a little bit here, right? Because your your solution you've already acknowledged by your other positions is problematic because of, you know, captured regulators, all this sort of stuff. It's it's just it's it, the mm. the issue is that there's anytime you're reducing anything to black and white, you're going to have a problem because the reality there, mm. it's not, it's not, it, everything is complex and fi- it's all about finding the balance and finding stuff. And it's never going to be perfect. And man, if we could just get everyone to agree that everything's not going to be perfect and we need to find a balance, we'd be a million times better off than we are in general. I agree. But that, that is no excuse to elect Donald Trump. So if you're listening and you're thinking, Hey, about we're not, from- we're not making this <laughs> sorry, political. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Oh, uh, I couldn't resist. This episode of Exponent is is sponsored by Wonder Capital. That's W-U-N-D-R. Uh, Techstars back Wonder Capital is the leading online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. Wonder's solar investment funds allow you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. They use significant, uh, sophisticated underwriting and investment algorithms to help you achieve your investment goals. This diversifies your exposure to bond stock, commodity markets fluctuation because their solar funds are backed by strong solar projects, not the market. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't make any fees for investing your money. Thousands of users have already taken advantage of Wonder's platform. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash exponent. That's Wonder with a U. Invest in a solar fund with Wonder Capital. Thank Our thanks to Wonder Capital for uh, sponsoring this podcast. And <laughs> uh, as should be obvious, um, I think we would probably support solar, but our sponsors have no impact on our political views, which we're not supposed to talk about anyway. So we just wrapped ourselves around our own axle. We did. I, 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 a mild, a mild, a mild, at least a somewhat, you know, probably political uh, advertisement in, a, in an episode where we said we weren't going to talk about politics. We kind of did. We, 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 we dug I, ourselves I, into a deep one. The irony of the situation is not lost. Now, all those people who are tweeting and emailing us to do an episode of politics. You want to be careful what you wish for because you just got it, and I hope it. I hope it's not too terrible. Oh no, we're gonna get, now we're gonna get all the emails of people annoyed. Oh, um, happy, happy right. days. Well, yeah, I gotta run. I will talk to you later. Sounds good, mate. See ya. Yeah, bye bye.